John chapter 12 is where I will pick up. It's where I left off last week. It's a a fascinating passage in John chapter 12. The Gospel of John was written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. I'll define Christ a little in this sermon, and then the second sermon, define it a lot more. The Christ is the anointed servant of the Lord of the Old Testament, promised primarily in the prophets of the Old Testament, and come to the earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John wrote, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinners, the Son of God, not just a creature alone called the Messiah, but the Son of God. The Son was sent by the Father as Son to assume our human nature in order to carry out our responsibilities, in order to bear our penalty, our guilt, his sufferings unto death on the cross. And he was rewarded with the benefits of redemption that he confers upon us who believe the gospel. John wrote for that purpose. So this is a gospel sermon. I'm going to plead with people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved because that's why John wrote his gospel. This section actually begins at verse 20 of chapter 12 and ends at verse 36. We're in verses 34, 35, and 36. These are our Lord's last exchange with this crowd that was there at, uh, at the temple during, at least during the Passover period. They were there in Jerusalem. The Passover is a very important part of ancient Israel's uh, public worship. Three times a year they would come for these public festivals. We can't really kind of identify with these things, but this one called Passover was to remember that God saved ancient Israel from the Egyptians by passing over their homes and not judging them, but judging the Egyptians. Now, this crowd that we hear about in verse 34, it says, the people answered him, or the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they have this assertion and then a twofold question, which we'll look at in a moment. But to get the gist of what's going on here, um, in 1220 through 36, the larger section, John has our Lord and the disciples in Jerusalem for that feast I talked about. It is the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry. Some say this is, could be Tuesday or Wednesday of that last week. In verse 20, it's crucial, John informs us that certain Greeks were there asking to see Jesus. Remember what they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. A wonderful uh, desire. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, for us in the 21st century, we go, what's the big deal? Who, who are these Greeks? It doesn't identify who they are. They are not Jews, though. But they're at the center of Jewish worship at one of the three annual festivals And they are knowledgeable of a man named Jesus that they want to see, which probably means we'd like to talk to him. He tells one of the disciples that, then two of them, Philip and Andrew, go tell Jesus, 
Jesus doesn't say, call the Greeks over here, I'm going to answer, I'm going to talk to them, okay? But notice what he does. It's very uh, important. Right after he was told about them, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's really important. Son of Man is a title uh, 83 times, I think it's used in the New Testament. Uh, in the Gospel of John, it's used like 13 times, and every single time it's a self identifier, it's a title taken by our Lord upon Himself, spoken by our Lord about Himself. One time somebody else uses it. I already read it. Verse 34 We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say, The Son of Man must be lifted up. Ah, Jesus identified himself earlier as the Son of Man. Now, now the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Right after he heard that Gentiles were there, and if you dig deep into the Old Testament, you don't have to dig that deep and read Daniel 7, you go, oh, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man in this vision that Daniel had about the future, who, after he lived on the earth, ascends to the Ancient of Days and is given dominion and a kingdom and the peoples of all the earth to obey him. So Jesus uses that title of himself right after he hears about these Greeks there. And then in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. Now, that's interesting. Why would his soul be troubled? Well, some of you know, especially if you were here last week, in the last several weeks, that right before verse 34, where the crowd responds to him, in verse 32, he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth. Verse 33 says he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would die. So Jesus says, I'm going to die. Before that, he says, now my soul is troubled. What do you think he's troubled about? The type of death he's going to die. Not just that it's going to be horrid physically. You know, he's going to be crucified. Wow, I'm going to be crucified. Because as some of you know the history of martyrdom, there have been many martyrs throughout the history of the church that at some point during their being being, uh, persecuted, they just kind of have this quiet power coming over their souls and they basically say lord forgive them for they do not know what they're doing and they die triumphantly without screaming and yelling like i would without apart from the grace of god jesus isn't screaming and yelling inside like oh i have to die this way he's contemplating something more than just crucifixion He's concentrating on the fact that he is going to be made a guilt offering for sinners. In other words, guilt means you, we are justly liable for punishment because of our sins. Christ takes our just liability for punishment and the punishment itself upon himself so that we can sing the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. If we were there when Jesus was lifted up from the earth, we wouldn't be going, wow, look at the deepest stroke that pierced him. It's the stroke that justice gave. Can you see justice being inflicted on the Son of God? No. 
But that is the deepest stroke that pierced him. That is the agony of the cross. And he's looking toward that, and it troubles his human soul. Our Lord is triggered by the presence of the Greeks. He uses that title from Daniel 7, Son of Man, once again. And in Daniel 7, it speaks of a day when a prophetic figure ascends to heaven, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him as dominion, Now watch this language, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Look at verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. His kingdom, his dominion is an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Pretty clear there, isn't it? Right where the phrase son of man comes from, there's this some sort of eternal, everlasting aspect of something given to the Son of Man. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. The Christ here is the Messiah, which means an anointed servant of the Lord as promised in the Old Testament. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they're perplexed. Now, commentators uh, if you if you'd have been there, and I read all the commentaries that I read out loud, you would have heard some of them saying, "This is derision. This is trying to trying to trap Jesus into a contradiction." Others said, "Well, it's, you can't really tell. Maybe they're just being honest." Our understanding of the Old Testament is that the Christ endures forever. You're claiming to be both the Christ and the Son of Man, but you said you're going to die. That doesn't sound like forever. If you die, you're done. So we've got to deal with uh, these verses. Now, I want to set verses 34 through 36 kind of in uh, context to help us. In verse 34, we're told that the people answered Jesus' claims. So Jesus ends his claims by saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all kinds of people, some from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, to myself to be saved. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would die. Then the, then the crowd or then the people respond. So it comes right after Jesus' claims that end with, this triumphant claim of lift me up from the earth, which means death by crucifixion. And as a consequence of that, I am going to have basically sinners from all over the world love me and serve me. In verses 35 and 36, our Lord responds to them. And these are our Lord's last public words before his arrest and trial. Notice his response. It's kind of odd. After they say, who is this son of man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Then John says, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. What kind of answer is that? 
We'll have to deal with that when we get there. But notice as well, at the end of verse 36, John makes that little apostolic kind of a side comment. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This has happened before where Jesus says something during a controversial conversation with others and then suddenly kind of slips out. Probably here due to the fact that he didn't want their derision, if it was in their souls, to rise to the, to the, to the point where it boiled over and out and they grabbed him and killed him prematurely or something like that. But notice what happens right after that. John gives his own thoughts on the unbelief among the majority of Jews who saw and heard Jesus. Verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. And he goes on and on and on. And it's kind of an apostolic uh, side comment. Uh, Here's the last thing I just wrote about. Jesus was in Jerusalem. It's the Passover time. Greeks come, they want to see Jesus. Jesus uses the Son of Man language title for himself. He ends with this triumphant, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The crowd asks this twofold answer. Jesus basically says, just believe me. And then he leaves. And then John says, oh, by the way, this is, there's a history of unbelief among the people that were there and saw him and heard him, saw the miracles. Then a voice from heaven came saying, these people heard the voice from heaven. What is it? It's thunder. You know how people say, if I was there and heard the miracles, man, I would have believed. They were there. They heard, they saw. They did not believe. So we have this interesting commentary in 37 and following uh, that we'll get to in the weeks to head. So let's look at verse 34 first. Verse 34, the crowd responds to Jesus' claims, okay? Claims, claims, claims were made first. If you have a red letter edition, it's all in the red letters. It's right there for you to see in red letters, okay? Massive claims in a certain context where Greeks were present and Jews were present during the Passover, which, by the way, who's our Passover? Christ is our Passover. Uh, God passes over us and judges him instead of us. The son of man language is used. The death of our Savior is proclaimed by the Savior himself. And then the crowd responds. Note their assertion. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now there are some times when the law refers to the law of Moses only. There are some times, like in John 10, where the law actually referred to Psalm 82. Other places in the New Testament, writers or speakers will reference the law, and they mean by that the entirety of the Old Testament. I think that's what's meant here. They're making an assertion. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Probably not we have heard because we have read it, but probably because our teachers have taught us about this aspect, about the Christ from the Old Testament, namely, when he comes on the earth, he, in, he remains forever. This is an assertion. Okay? This is a truth claim that we've heard this probably taught, and therefore their teachers are believing they are expounding the Old Testament faithfully. 
They claim that they know something about the teaching of the Old Testament in reference to the Messiah, who is the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, which means anointed servant of the Lord, as promised in various places in the Old Testament. The Christ remains forever. You see their dilemma? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, that's referring to the death of the Son of Man, who also claims to be the Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament, and yet he's saying he's going to die. We've heard that the Christ remains forever. Note there are two related questions. How can you say, okay, say they make an assertion, when the Christ comes on the scene, that he who was promised in the Old Testament, when he comes on the scene, we know this. He remains forever. He doesn't go off the scene. He doesn't die. They have two related questions. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is this Son of Man? So their first question is, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? If we know that the Messiah, it seems like they're you could just say, if we know that the Christ will remain forever, the Messiah will remain forever, the Son of Man will remain forever. It seems like they, they understand that. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is this Son of Man? Now, our Lord didn't say the Son of Man must be lifted up. He said, I must be lifted up. But, so it's interesting. Now they're going, well, how can this Son of Man be lifted up? Remember, to be lifted up is a sign signifying by what kind of death he would die. It's a verbal sign signifying death by crucifixion, we would say, under the, under the wrath of God as well. Jesus didn't say the Son of Man must be lifted up, but if I am lifted up from the earth. So they take our Lord's claim of being the Son of Man and compare it against their present knowledge of the Old Testament's teaching about the coming Messiah. You're saying the Christ is going to die. We're saying the Old Testament, the law teaches he remains forever. Therefore, you're not the Christ, right? And nor are you the Son of Man. Their first question is basically this. If the Christ remains forever according to the Old Testament, and it is clear that he does, we'll see this in a moment, how is it that you claim he doesn't? It's basically what they're saying. The Old Testament claims that Christ comes on the scene, he remains forever. You're basically saying you're the Christ, you came on the scene, but you're not going to remain here forever. How does that work? Jesus. So this is why some reading this going, they're trying to trick the Lord. We've seen this before. Now, whether or not they are or not, I don't think that's the biggest issue. If you insert the word Christ for son of man, you can see their dilemma with our Lord's claims. Basically, they're saying this, since the Christ remains forever according to the Old Testament, and since you claim to be that promised one, that Christ, yet you also claim he must die, how can you be the promised Christ? See it? I think it's there. How can the Christ remain forever and not remain forever? 
given the fact that you claim to be him and yet just said he must be lifted up or, in their thinking, not remain forever. That's, that's where they're at with him. In the next words, Jesus picked up stones to stone them. No, that didn't happen, did it? Let me ask you a question. Does the Old Testament, in fact, teach that the Christ remains forever? The Christ is the, is the promised one who would be anointed, would be have a, who had have gifts to fulfill a distinct office or calling like no one else before, promised in various places in the Old Testament. That's the Christ of the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament teach that the Christ remains forever? You know what the answer is? Yes. The thing that they didn't understand is that he could both be killed and remain forever. Sounds like a clash, doesn't it? This is a contradiction. How can you die and remain forever? Well, maybe you can die and rise from the dead and remain forever. And maybe you can be a two-natured redeemer who dies according to his, the only nature that can die is human nature and yet ever lives and upholds the human nature while the human nature is dying as God. Psalm 89 speaks about the Messiah to come in these words. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. Picking up on Abrahamic promises as well. And his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. That's Psalm 89, 35 through 37. So that sounds like permanent Messiah once he comes, right? Psalm 110, 4. By the way, Psalm 110, the most cited psalm in the New Testament, always in reference to it being prophetic or looking forward to Christ. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, speaking about the Messiah, you are a priest forever. We've heard that the Christ remains forever. Sounds like it. This psalm, Psalm 110, is a messianic psalm, and it's uh, about our Lord. Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah to come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here it is, Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Sounds like they're right, right? And those came from Psalms and prophets. And there's other places where the conclusion, the assertion we have heard uh, from the law that the Christ remains forever seems to be true. So they're not wrong about that. Their question is, how can that be true and yet you die? which means 
If they got the teaching of the Old Testament, that the Christ remains forever from their teachers, their teachers most likely saw only what we call the glory of the Messiah and didn't see the sufferings of the Messiah. All they saw was, in their thinking, once he comes, he remains. The Jews will be great, matter of fact, so great, that the Messiah of ultimately the world will rule from here via his first coming. They didn't see the sufferings of Christ. They only saw the glories of Christ. So their assertion is right as far as it goes, but their question reveals a hole in their understanding of the Old Testament. Here's why I say that. Listen to these words, Daniel 9.26. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Oops. Messiah shall be cut off. There's a note in the New King James Version. uh, Experience the death, death penalty or something like that. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. It is a reference to the death of the Messiah being, what is that V word I've been using? Vicarious, right? His death is not for himself. It's in, for others. But there it's very clear. The Messiah, according to Daniel, in the future, when he's on the earth, he's going to be cut off. And yet other places in the Old Testament, the Messiah remains forever. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Remember, Jesus himself said that. Isaiah 53 says this, He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now my soul is troubled, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. If you are the Christ, call legions of angels, you know, come down from there and all that stuff. Surely he was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's Isaiah 53, and that is a mouthful, isn't it? It seems very clear that the Old Testament teaches both that the Christ shall remain forever and he shall be cut off. He shall suffer, but not for himself, but in the place of others. I've told this story before. I think this was going on in the New Testament. I was on a plane one time, and there was a young lady sitting next to me, and I, you know, how you, you don't go like this. You just sit there with a straight face, and your eyes go that way. And you look at this 
text she had open, and she was reading it, I could tell. I knew it was Hebrew script. That's about all I knew. And at some point I asked her, what is that? And she said, it's just a commentary on the Old Testament or something like that. And I said, oh, oh. And I said, it's written in Hebrew. I assume you're Jewish. And she said, yes. Um, I said, tell me about Isaiah 53. I just read from Isaiah 53, man of sorrows. Tell me about Isaiah 53. Who is it about? She said, us. And you know what she meant by that? The Jewish people. So that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is a corporate servant, namely the nation of Israel. Most likely, that's probably the view of the first century as well. Because they had the law, the Old Testament. They had to know, it says, the Messiah shall be cut off. Maybe they read it as a corporate Messiah, namely the Jews will be cut off, which they were. So it could be that in the first century, the teachers of the law were teaching the people to expect a Messiah that would rule and reign now in his first coming from Jerusalem, and that Israel would become the light of the world, basically, through that. And that they missed, they got the glory in part right, but they missed the sufferings of the same Messiah promised in the Old Testament because they applied them somehow, some way, corporately, to themselves as a nation. Could, could be that or something like that. So their first, quest, their first question assumes the Old Testament taught the glory of the Messiah, but not his sufferings for our sins. You remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, at the end of the book of Luke, after the resurrection, before the ascension into heaven, Jesus teaches two groups of disciples, two witnesses, and then the, the disciples, elite 11, come. And he basically chides, well, he doesn't basically chides them. He chides them. He says, look, you should have known that the Old Testament, that the law, the prophets, and the writings predicted these days, namely the days of the Christ, who should suffer and then enter into his glory. That's Luke 24, 25 or something like that. If you go fast forward several verses later when all the disciples, the 11 original, are there with him, he says the Old Testament teaches that, the law teaches that the Messiah should suffer and be raised on the third day. Okay, So entering his glory and being raised on the first third day is the same, same thing in different words. But the thing of it is, is he's saying he acknowledges the glory upon the resurrection. And then he says, you, you should have known both the sufferings and the glory. Both were taught in the Old Testament. The first century Jews didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah. And that's why a lot of times when you read about them, they appear to be smug and self-righteous. You know, if you don't have a category for a suffering Messiah, you don't need a savior. You just need a king to beat all the rest of the people up. 
If you have a category for a suffering Messiah, then you have to ask the question, why would this Christ who remains forever suffer? Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. There is a, there's a clue, right? Whatever this cut off means, death, it's not for himself, but it's death for someone else. Death is the justice of God executing itself, terminating on guilty people. The Son of God incarnate assumes guilt, a liability to punishment. He suffers to the point of death, even death on a cross, but not for himself, but for others. He became one of us, yet without sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There There is that transaction that took place where he assumed our nature, he assumed our guilt. He suffered. They didn't have a category for that. Now, we don't want to be too hard. Well, I don't want to be too hard on these people, okay? Because I I read the Bible. I recommend you read it, too. And we could sit here going, oh, eggheads, stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, all those things are kind of, kind of true. But when you put it in a larger context and you remember, remember these words from Peter, God forbid it, Lord. I've brought this up many times. When did Peter say that? Well, after his wonderful confession, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus commenced to teach the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must be raised from the dead. So remember the words, God forbid it, Lord. Peter said it right after Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. God forbid it, Lord. Even the disciples during the earthly ministry of Christ, they didn't always get this. I think they were true believers, but they were... You know, information was coming to them, connecting the Old Testament with Jesus. So we need to be careful about being too hard on these people if we're not going to be too hard on others as well. These people were probably following the teaching of their masters. So show me the teachers. I'll be hard on them. Twice as much a son of hell, right? Remember when Jesus is pronouncing the woes on the Pharisees? Jesus will get the teachers. Okay? We don't have to go chase them down or anything. But the disciples struggled with this um, suffering Messiah. The first century Jews didn't allow the Old Testament to paint a full portrait of the promise of our Lord. They got some of the pieces of the puzzle right, they didn't get this one right. And there's, I think there's a lesson for us. Oh, here's a practical application. So you can go home saying, wow, what a practical preacher. Here's from J.C. Ryle. Let us note that a half-knowledge of Scripture, a suppression of some texts, and a misapplication of other texts will account for a large portion of mistakes in religion. That's his observation here. 
In reading our Bibles, we must be careful to give every part and portion its due weight. They missed a part or portion with monumental weight clearly found in the Old Testament. And in missing that part, they lost their souls. They're walking around in darkness, as Jesus is going to say in a moment here. Remember later when we read in the first in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we, we preach Christ crucified, the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, Paul says that, to the Jews, a stumbling block. Right? It was a stumbling block here, suffering Messiah, the Son of Man being lifted up. And it remained a stumbling block to many other Jews in the first century, not all of them, but to others. So this crowd was right to assert that the Christ remains forever, but wrong to assume he could not die and yet remain forever. That, that's, the, that's the thing we got to deal with, okay? Both are taught he remains forever, and yet he dies, he's cut off. How can those two things be true at once? Well, he must live after death. I think Sean agrees with that one. But notice their second question. Who is this son of man? This is where the commentators go, ooh. You know, these people are trying to trap Jesus in front of his own disciples. Who is this son of man? In the context, our Lord clearly identifies himself as the son of man as promised in the Old Testament. So it, it seems clear that they realize this. That's why they use this term. Jesus used it of himself. They were there. They heard him up in verse 23. Now they're using it of Jesus. Now, why would they ask this question? Who is this son of man? I think it's because of this. They did not believe the Old Testament taught a suffering Messiah. And they did not believe Jesus' self-identifying claims. They did not believe what Jesus said about himself, and they did not believe that what Jesus said about himself is rooted in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the written word of God. They didn't believe the incarnate word of God about the written word of God terminating upon himself and him being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to look at verses 35 and 36 very briefly. Jesus responds, very interesting response. He said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, kind of explains what walking is, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John adds these interesting, this interesting observation these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now, the response of our Lord is very instructive. Whether or not the crowd's response was an honest inquiry or words of derision, mockery, and contempt is not really the point. You might be sitting there going, but I like a good argument, you know, I like a good fight. I don't know if that's really what's going on here. It could be... Maybe not. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is their unbelief, though. 
That's the point. In the face of our Lord's verbal claims, and in the face of what we are told happened in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. The Jews seek signs. Remember what Paul said? Did they get signs? They sure did. The Gospel of John is the book of the signs of Christ's miracles. A voice came from heaven, a sign came. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So here we have the self-witness of the incarnate Son of God, the Son of Man and Messiah. And so we can say neither the self-witness of the incarnate Son of God, the Son of Man and Messiah, nor a voice from heaven could convince the crowd of the veracity of our Lord's claims, right? He's claiming it, his own self-witness, and heaven says, listen to him, basically. Instead of being humbled by this voice from heaven, affirming and confirming, though not in these words, basically the, the, the same thing, This is my beloved son, hear him. Another time in the gospel accounts where this voice comes from heaven. Instead of that, um, we, we see their unbelief here. So what does he do? He calls them, this is what Jesus does, okay? In the face of them not believing his, his, his self-witness about himself, And the voice that came from heaven that basically says, you better believe him. And then they ask these questions. What does Jesus do? Jesus basically says, whatever. You better believe. You better, while the light's here, you better believe in the light. He identifies himself as a light. And some of you know that he does that in many places in John's gospel. A little while... A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Now, um, I was thinking earlier this week, okay, have you ever played the game? I used to when I was a kid. I'm not a kid anymore, so I don't play this game. Either close your eyes totally and try to walk around someplace or like I did with my really, my, I have one cousin that's a lot younger than me. My aunt was really old. She had this baby. And I was playing with her at our house. And I put a blanket over my head and I started walking around. And I couldn't see. And I tripped, busted my lip, and it was so stupid. But I couldn't see. I couldn't see. I think I tripped over a, what do you call those things? Hammock? No, not a hammock. Hassock? Something like that, you know, a little thing for your feet. And I tripped and got really hurt. I was, I was walking in the dark. I, I think that's better than trying to imagine somebody out in the desert with the light of the moon maybe helping them because you can see some things. He's talking not about physical stuff here. He's talking about their, their souls. You know, if you don't believe in the light, you're going to be like, you're going to be walking around in the darkness. You're going to be saved. Uh, excuse me. You're going to be lost. You can't find your way, and you're going to actually make life worse 
before you're going to trip and stumble and bang your head. And someday you'll be smashed. Not by yourself, but in virtue of your own sins and guilt. It's as if our Lord is saying, I will be lifted up and yet rise from the dead, then depart. As I've said many times before, I am the light. Believe in me and become sons of light or sons of God. He became, uh, excuse me, he gave to some the right or the authority to become children of God. John 1, this is an echo of John 1, who were born, not of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And now he says to these people, I am the light, believe in me and become sons of God. I am the son of man, I am the Messiah, who will be cut off and rise from the dead and remain forever. He's assuming all that stuff's true. And when he says, believe in me as light, he means believe in me as the Messiah, the Son of Man, who remains forever and yet who is cut off, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. This is a gospel. These are gospel words to these people. These words of our Lord contain both a promise and a threat. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. There's the promise. And walk while you have the light, lest, here's the threat, lest darkness overtake you, he walks in darkness, does not know where he is going. Now, could it be that our Lord is here warning these Jews? I think so. Basically, a day will come when the conveyors of my message will turn from the Jews to the Greeks. When I first read that in some of the commentaries, I'm going to prove it. Prove that someday in the future, the conveyors of the message about Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, prove that it goes from a Jewish-centered evangelistic approach to the Greeks. All you have to do is read the New Testament, right? This happened in Acts 13 through Paul and Barnabas. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, Jews, first. But since you reject it, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. You keep reading, it says, and the Gentiles praised God. I think one of the reasons in the wider context is because This light that they were bearing, the light of the Messiah through their spoken words, is actually connected to Old Testament prophecies about a light bearer in the future that would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Could it be that this threat is the threat of judicial hardening on the Jewish people in the first century? I got a few of those. You know, if you read Matthew... 24, and you read it as the destruction of, uh, of Jerusalem in AD 70, then you can go, ooh, maybe that's evidence of this as well. You know, you can hear the old preachers, uh, at least the old commentaries, if that is the case, they want to apply it to their hearers, right? Could there come a day when the gospel's taken from you and you just 
left to yourself to walk in utter darkness. Yes, that would be a horrible thing for the Jews within one generation after our Lord spoke these words, a judicial blindness came over the Jews and the Christian church founded on Christ who is Jewish spread to other regions of the ancient world. Don't let their bad example and the threat and its fulfillment, don't let that become your story. Jesus was offered to me many, many times in the preaching of the gospel, and I said, yeah, but what about this text? What about this verse? It's interesting. You want to sit there as an unbeliever, and you're saying you've got the Bible all figured out, and the believing preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. I'll admit sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. Hopefully I don't do that much from behind the pulpit. But you're, as an unbeliever, your problem isn't me, really. That's what you say, preacher. No, Jesus Jesus is the one you have to deal with. Why did he come? Why did he suffer? Why does he remain forever? You know, all those questions are yours to deal with. Don't fight it. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay, we have closing words from John. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. These things refers to the entire discourse beginning in verse 23. Our Lord's public ministry in Jerusalem basically comes to an end here. I mean, we have some words at the end of John 12 that were spoken by Jesus. It's, I don't even know where he spoke these and when he spoke them. I know he spoke them. Uh, it looks like John's kind of pulling some other words from a previous time when Jesus said some things to prove his point that these people had tons of signs and tons of words and they didn't believe. And yet the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saw the glory of the pre-incarnate son before he became incarnate, Isaiah chapter 6. He does all of that. The last discussion he had with some Jewish people ended with a gospel plea in the midst of their unbelief. Isn't that like Jesus? If it was me, I'd say, all right, you fool, you idiot. I'm not talking to you again you know, or whatever. Jesus basically, what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose, for this hour I have come. Father, glorify thy name. So, so he's, he's got this in mind. I'm going to be lifted up to die for sinners. And in the meantime, sinners who need what he's going to do for sinners are pushing back against him. And his last word to them is basically gospel promise with a little threat involved with it as well. And that's his last public discussion until his arrest and trial. There'll be some public words later. 
So the last discussion he had with some Jewish people ended with a gospel plea in the teeth of unbelief. And John's words in verses 37 and following end up giving us an apostolic review of the unbelief so so characteristic of those who witness our Lord while on earth. So what John's going to do next time we get to this gospel in two or three weeks is he's going to say, oh, by the way, this unbelief of these people who ask these questions of Jesus is true of a lot of my brethren in the first century. Uh, Let me show you how bad it was. God incarnate came, spoke, miracles, signs were delivered. And yet, they didn't believe. It's kind of a sad ending in one sense. Um, it's, but it's not the ending. Because there's a lot to go on this last week of our Lord's life, and we'll get there in due time. Let's pray. We come to you, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word. It's been preached. It's a hard section in some senses. In other senses, senses, it's very clear. These people did not believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate, God become man for man and his salvation. And unless they repented later, which some of them could have, uh, thousands of Jews, after the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord, thousands of them did believe. It is recorded for us in the book of Acts. But unless they did believe, they were walking around in darkness. Same goes for us. May it not be true of any of us that we're walking around in darkness. Because then that day of wonder, that dreadful day of judgment will come upon us and we'll have no clothes, no righteousness, no forgiveness of sins. May that not be true of any of us. Now we ask your blessings on your word in Jesus' name. Amen.